our research has shown when we're working on the transformation of an organization that organizations are not transformed by individual agents of change. Organizations are transformed by movements created where small bodies of role model evangelists and futurists and protagonists of change come together. They become emboldened by their partnership. They come together as small peer groups taking a hill together. Welcome to Light Data Action, the podcast that's on a mission to help you discover new technology trends and tools and better understand how they affect the world around us. Light Data Action is sponsored and produced by Lumen Technologies, the platform for amazing things. I'm your host, Terry Barbonis, and in each episode, I'll speak with industry executives and thought leaders to discuss how these technologies change the way we do business, how they influence the fourth industrial revolution, and how you can stay ahead of the innovation. If you're ready, let's join the conversation. Hey, everybody. Since March of 2020, the topic of future of work has been trending in the media, within boardrooms, and amongst the global workforce. Now, most of these conversations have revolved around where are we going to work from? Do we continue with predominantly remote work? Do we go back to the office? Or are we going to do a little bit of both? What technology will we need to leverage to make us productive versus the old way of working? And how will the future of work impact our corporate cultures? All of these are good questions, but are they the right questions? Does success in the future of work mean that we have to fundamentally rethink what going back to work actually means? My guest today is one of the world's foremost experts in how we can reinvent and reimagine the future of work. Keith Ferrazzi is the founder, chairman, and CEO of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a consulting research and coaching firm that studies how behavioral science can help create better performing teams. Keith received his bachelor's in economics from Yale University, his MBA from Harvard, and went on to become the youngest chief marketing officer at Deloitte Consulting and then later held the same role at Starwood Hotels and Resorts. He's a New York Times bestselling author of titles such as Never Eat Alone, Who's Got Your Back, Leading Without Authority, and his latest book titled Competing in the New World of Work. He's a highly sought-after coach to Fortune 100 companies, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Keith, welcome. Great to have you here. Terry, what a pleasure, and what a, what a lovely, thoughtful introduction. I appreciate you. Well, I appreciate you as well. So I was uh, I loved when your new book came out at the beginning of, of the year because it touched on some of the same things that I certainly have been talking to customers and to our internal folks about for at least the last year and a half. But f- from a you know radical adaptability perspective, flexibility and so forth, it's been mostly around how technology can be used. Uh, for us to adapt to this sort of new norm and this future of work. Uh, you know, you've been talking about and researching this concept, future of work, for at least the last decade. And I know future of work in and of itself has been talked about for probably going on to two decades. And yet in 2020, it became sort of the reason for us to now bring it back to the forefront. Um, how are we doing with that now that we've been trying to do it for a while. What's the status of this so-called future of work? Uh, Give us a C minus. 
so much of the challenges that we're focused on today are policy oriented. And the reality is we've got to move from focus on policy. Are we a two day shop a week, three days, five days? Is it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? That's a policy conversation. There's another conversation that we should be having, which is actually about how do we work? What are the practices? I, I'm saying we need to move from policy to practices. And on practices, we haven't fundamentally rebooted the way we work. Um, I know that because for a profession, I coach teams to be significantly transformed in their behaviors and competencies using new tools and technologies, but not just tools and technologies, using entirely different mindsets on how we collaborate with each other. And I'd love to go into the detail of that in this conversation because there's, there's, a, there's a small number of practices which leaders could begin to adopt that will allow us to fundamentally reboot the transformation of our organizations, to fundamentally redesign the ways we collaborate and work together that will put to shame how we worked prior to the pandemic. That's interesting. And, you know, we, you talk about collaboration. I want to talk about that for a second, because again, it's when you talk about future work, the big thing that comes up is collaboration. We're now using tools, again, going back to the technology, we're using Teams, we're using Zoom, we're using WebEx, all kinds of things. In your view of collaboration, when you talk about collaboration and, and inclusion, your version, your future of collaboration doesn't actually start with a meeting, physical or virtual. It actually starts with a shared document. Can you go into that? Because I think that's fascinating. There are myths that we have today about work that are really holding us back from transforming our organizations. One of the myths we have is the myth that collaboration starts with a meeting. And I love the story uh, that I tell in my book, Competing in the New World of Work, from Gil West. So Gil was the chief operating officer of Delta Airlines. Um, obviously an organization that embraces physical meetings because they want to put your butt in a seat to take you from what your home to a physical meeting. And therefore they were, they've been predominantly focused uh, in their culture around meeting-based collaboration, physical meeting-based collaboration. But Gil moved during the pandemic from Delta Airlines as to the chief operating officer of a, of a self-driving automotive unicorn company called Cruise. And when he went over there, he started noticing some things that he wanted to focus on. And he said to his team over there, he said, we should have a meeting on this topic. And the people looked at him with puzzlement. And they said, Gil, how do we have a meeting on this topic? We haven't collaborated yet. And he was, it just was almost such a non sequitur for him until he understood the way in which this unicorn company actually drives collaboration. So I'll give you a, for instance, um, if you've got a critical problem, let's say there's a manufacturer that is moving from one product line to another, let's call it an automotive manufacturer. And they're moving from traditional combustion engines to electronic vehicles as all of them are, but they're falling behind. They're falling behind in retooling manufacturing, and we're not going to meet the deadlines that we have. We're not going to meet the promises to the market. 
Well, one organization would run synchronous meetings to try to figure that out. So you'd get the the, the head of manufacturing, we get the 12 people that he thinks he needs to be engaged in the conversation in a room together. Getting them scheduled would probably take, I don't know, two weeks to get all these important people in the room. They'd get into the room and they'd begin the collaborative process of diagnosing, maybe there's a presentation, diagnosing why we're falling behind, what's some of the root cause analysis, et cetera. In that dialogue, they they may recognize that there's data they didn't have, right? There are insights that aren't in this room of 12 people. More importantly, the conversation was scheduled for an hour and a half. And what I know in our data at Frozzy Greenlight is in an average meeting of 12 people, only four people think they've been heard. So now we've gotten this important group of people in the room. And on average of the 12 people, because it's an hour and a half meeting, only four people have full voice. That's the way we've used to collaborate and work and kick off a collaboration. I'll give you a different way to do it. Different way to do it is you go to a Google Doc or a SharePoint document, and it's a spreadsheet called a decision board. And the head of manufacturing says, the problem is we're falling behind in manufacturing. He writes that into the spreadsheet. His name is the first name on the, on the spreadsheet. Then he says, here's a bold solution I'm thinking about. We should reduce the complexity of the cars that we have. We should have only... 10 cars, not 20 cars in our EV roadmap. The people I think should be involved in this discussion are, of course, the head of R&D, the head of marketing, et cetera. And he sends that out to the people he thinks should be involved in the conversation, not invite them to a meeting. And he asks them, please fill in the critique of your point of view against mine. So the head of marketing says, well, I don't think that is the problem. It's not about uh, this. It's about that. I don't think that's the solution. It, 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 it's this. And a bunch of people, 12 people are now debating in a spreadsheet back and forth in terms of what they think the problem is, who, um, what they think the solution is. And then they're all adding additional people on the list that should be involved. Well, you haven't gotten Jane involved, but she's the closest to the call face on this problem. So we send the spreadsheet to Jane. Well, in the reality of this situation, 35 people ended up being involved Everybody had a full airing of their point of view. And at the end, the head of manufacturing looked at the tapestry of this dialogue without a meeting yet and said, wow, here's a solution that I hadn't thought of. And it came from somebody I would have never invited to the meeting. Let's have a meeting with these four people and let's land the plane on this thing. That's the way collaboration can happen in the future. You begin your collaboration before the meeting begins to convene and you now have identified what the real problem is we're solving, what are the what are the options and opportunities to solve that problem, and who really has a dog in the hunt that should be involved. And the only people that had to block a meeting on their calendar were the most crucial individuals to end this, this, this conversation. That is a fundamentally rebooted way to think about collaboration. And that's what we're bringing to teams. And, and as a result of that, we're finding, number one, you have more inclusive dialogue, more people are heard and broader. We can have 35 people involved in the conversation actively where all 35 people are actually heard as opposed to having a meeting of 12 people and only four are heard. Next thing is you have bolder ideas because guess what happens? People are more psychologically safe when they're asked to answer a question in a document. They are bolder. They're more willing to challenge. They're more willing to engage. They're more willing to speak up versus an introvert in a room that will 
will allow the charismatic individual to take the day or into somebody who's a little bit concerned that their point of view might not be welcome. But, but if asked a direct question in a document, they'll answer and tell the truth. Psychological safety, the boldness of decisions, the inclusiveness of decision-making, all of these things increase and the speed. In the old day, that meeting of 12 people took a week or two to get organized. Then they realized they didn't have the right people in the room. They didn't have the right data. They scheduled the next meeting with different and more people, but took longer. Now they're three weeks out for the next meeting. And in this case, it's a one to two week asynchronous process, landing a smaller meeting, which could get scheduled quicker. So I've just given you a scenario that fundamentally rethinks the collaborative model using very simple shift of mindset. The collaboration does not start with a meeting and we're using the tools we have available like Google Suite and Teams and others to engage collaboratively in a different way. Now, I hope those of you who are listening to this will look at this and say, that is a better way to collaborate. And by the way, I don't give a whether you're two or three days in the office for this point. That's not relevant. You can land your plane on your policies however you want. I'm focused on how we work and how we collaborate. I don't care what your policies are. Yeah, that's and it's interesting that last point you made because because I was going to say you know when we hear about um, you know you you talk about uh, radical adaptability. There's other analysts that talk about radical flexibility again, mostly from a technology perspective. Um, and one of the things that comes up in those discussions, you know, radical flexibility uh, at its core is well, now it's not just um, you know where you work and which hours you work, but it's being able to work from uh, any device, anytime, anywhere. But another piece to that is, have we now moved beyond measuring those inputs? And it's all about outcomes and outputs, which I think from what you describe, basically is leading to that same conclusion. Yeah. Yes. Right? And in fact, um, the idea of radical adaptability, which is we have to wake up and recognize that the world we're living in today, surprisingly, is certainly as, if not more volatile in a post-pandemic world than the craziness that we were living through in 2020 and 2021. This is the new normal. And by the way, I've been preaching for many years that it was the new more normal in the past. So we've right. been talking about the of the future of work for 20 years. We've been talking about the need to be radically adaptable and agile longer than that. And what I'm dying, I'm dying, is that we still haven't really re-engineered the way we work. And my biggest fear is that we would go back to work after the pandemic and not go forward to work. And that's what I'm seeing too many organizations do. One of the things that we're beginning to think about is how hybrid work works. We've always been hybrid. If you're listening to this and you have more than one office, you're hybrid. If you're listening to this and you have two floors in your office, in your, in your building, you're hybrid. Because at the end of the day, you're not literally sitting next to all of the people you're collaborating with 24-7, even if you were five days a week, as Elon Musk is suggesting in the office. You're still hybrid. And so the question is, how do we extract the greatest degree of insight and decision-making and collaboration from being hybrid? We have design since 2010, a model that says, what does it mean to be world-class hybrid? And yes, typically that it has been thought about and designed by companies that are predominantly remote because they've been forced to think differently 
about how they collaborate versus those of us who have been predominantly physical, have afforded the laziness of old ways of working that are not as efficient, that are meeting-based, that are synchronous, as opposed to some of the, the things that we're advocating for that teams need to wake up to in a world-class hybrid environment and, and fundamentally reboot the way they work. And I can tell you that on a scale of zero to five, which we've created this maturity model of being world-class hybrid, where five is a fully innovative, cutting-edge, world-class hybrid company, the average team that's listening to this is around a two. So there's a, there's a certain amount, obviously, of agility in this. So I was going to ask what the profile looked like, if there was such a thing, for the type of company that would be more adaptable, no pun intended, to this going forward model. So the unicorn disruptors come along with, with, with the aspiration of disrupting a business model. Now, what's also beneficial for them is because they're starting from scratch without a technology legacy, it's frankly easier for them. You know, one could argue, why is it easier for a fintech company to disrupt the way in which we do payments versus a large bank that has, you know, a, a brand and a customer base of significance, but yet they can't, you know, they can't easily beat the payments of a company like, you know, Square or, or PayPal or whatever, right? And the answer is because the technology legacy and the, the lack of capital, when you're a big company, you're not sitting on a big swath of cash to reinvent. And unfortunately, you have to dig out of a tech debt to be disruptive. So all this is pretty standard, well aware, why are the disruptors able to disrupt? But there's something we don't look a lot at, which is they, don't there aren't, they, they also aren't burdened by a legacy of 100 years of a way of working that a large organization might be. Now, the thing that I notice when I'm looking at unicorns is that they the burden of ways of working don't necessarily have to be institutional. A company that's only three years old and is disrupting a business model still has workers in it, leaders in it that have worked in those big legacy companies and still think about work in traditional ways. But I do find that the adaptability of a unicorn is higher. They're more technologically native, most likely. They're not afraid of, of new technologies like Google Docs and things that we're talking about here that are pretty rudimentary, to be honest, but they're not afraid of it. They lean into these things, new software to support project management, workflow management, new software to support knowledge management, et cetera. But a guy like Drew Houston, who at one point was a unicorn, who now uh, was the CEO of, of Dropbox, went public successfully. During the pandemic, he was a predominantly physical first company. But soon as the pandemic hit, he awoke to the realization that he needed to be remote first, that he wanted to be remote first. And he wanted to re-engineer everything he was doing to be world-class remote slash world-class hybrid. Because by the way, he still does have physical interaction with his teams, but they are they pay for real estate when they need it. And they gather when they need them. So physical meetings still happen, but they're lower on the stack of prioritization than asynchronous collaboration or remote and hybrid collaboration. So a guy like Drew Houston was truly willing to go from fully physical first 
to fully remote. Why? Because he's got a mindset of innovation. He's got a mindset of adaptability. He's got a mindset of willingness to pivot and change. He, if I, when I studied Drew's business for my previous books, both competing in the new world of work and leading without authority, he told stories about his having to pivot his fundamental business model when he was up and running. All of a sudden, some other company decided to give away as a lost leader, his primary business model. So in literally a week, he had to fundamentally shift his primary business model. People who have that level of adaptability and ability to be agile on core strategy, they can more readily adapt to new ways of working than organizations like many automotive companies that were holding on to combustion engines way too long. And they didn't, even though they saw the research, they didn't see the writing on the, on the walls. Yeah. So when you go into the non-unicorn, say a company of lumen size, the Fortune 100, 200s, when you speak to those executives, given the pedigree of this is the way we've always done it, do you find that they are open to what you're saying or do you ever get any pushback and really have to drive a little harder just to have them see the, you know, the epiphany, for the lack of a better term, on, on why what we have been doing, simply making it remote and doing the same thing or just applying technology isn't going to get you there. Our research has shown when we're working on the transformation of an organization that organizations are not transformed by individual agents of change. Organizations are transformed by movements created where small bodies of role model evangelists and futurists and protagonists of change come together. They become emboldened by their partnership. They come together as small peer groups taking a hill together. This, and they come together in a philosophy that we've identified. When we watch these teams, and they don't, when I say teams, they don't have to report to each other. They're a group of people committed to a mission, but committed to each other. I, I, I branded the behavioral ethos, the commitment that that group has to each other. I branded it something I call co-elevation. This team is committed to a mission, but they're committed to lifting each other in service of the mission. They're committed to a mission and they're committed to each other and kicking each other's butts and pushing each other harder and giving each other coaching to, to, to move the mission forward. They're committed to moving each other up. And that is so powerful. And it, and when I, when I'm speaking to a large organization's audience, I, I enlist that group and I embolden that group. And I will often say for the rest of you, watch. Watch this group go perform extraordinary things and then join us, right? Or be left behind. And so what I'm doing is I'm, I, I, my talks, when I give talks to organizations, I call them challenge talks. I challenge the audience to step up and identify the individuals within it who are the role models. And I give them a roadmap to be better role models, to build movements, not just initiatives, to build movements of change that enlist their peers to be transformative. Just to go back to sort of collaboration and that layered approach um, in terms of physical and virtual meetings with this push, and you mentioned some of the companies we've heard from Apple, we've heard from Elon uh, and his companies about pulling everybody back into the office. Do you see in your research a benefit of physical versus virtual? Is virtual actually better form at the end of the day? No. It's different and it's not to be, it's not to be ignored. 
Um, and I don't want to have anybody say that I don't believe in physical collaboration. I believe in physical collaboration at the right time for the right reason. If you want to start a conversation, you start it asynchronously where people have time to be contemplative and you can be more inclusive and broader in your reach for ideas. Then you move it to remote where you can iterate and intellectually have dialogue like this and people can can wrestle ideas, but the right people are in the room focused on the right questions. That's clear because you've identified that using your asynchronous work. Then when you get crunchy or we want to really land the plane, we go physical because now we're face to face and I can be more empathetic and I can be more, you know, we can wrestle the emotional stuff. You use physical for emotional. It is very powerful when you're bringing a new team together to let's say a, a company has got a major initiative that it's launching and it, it should start with that company bringing people together, breaking bread, learning people's values, going deep on the emotional connection. Because in many organizations, teams that have worked together for five to 10 years have been stress tested and weatherborne through going through the, the, the mill together, going through the storms together. And yet in a world where we're putting together a team quick and we need to get to action quick, you gotta be more proactive in getting that team to bond, to trust, that's so much better done physically. So you bring right. that team together for that purpose. And then you, when you move into remote, you actually are, are leaning on the foundation of the relationship that you built personally. So I do believe in personal collaboration. I call it the collaboration stack. And I talk about this in the, I think it's the fourth chapter of, of competing in the new world of work, which is a role model for what we're talking about here. I studied 2000 leaders during the pandemic on how they wanted to reinvent work. And we've documented that as best practices. If you want to learn from 2000 of your peers competing in the new world of work is your book. And, and, and that documentation of the collaborative stack asynchronous, learn how to do that. Well, then you learn how to do remote meetings. Well, remote meetings shouldn't be run like a physical meeting. Then how do you do physical meetings? Well, all of those in the collaborative stack need to be uniquely managed. So the great resignation, we hear about we're in the great resignation, the great reset, whatever you want to call it. I've heard you say that we're not actually in the great resignation. We're in the great exploration, which I think is a term that Mike Clementi from Unilever quoted. Um, and that the great resignation is, is what we'll firmly be into if we fail this you know, this exploration that we're doing in terms of figuring out how to make people and teams better. So I know that in a potentially softening economy, recessionary period, whatever people want to call this, um, there's less talk about the great resignation. But I want to put that aside for a second. We were benchmarking how are companies responding to this great resignation. And we had a group of CHROs in a room, one of which was uh, Mike Clementi, brilliant guy from Unilever. And he said, you know what, I've been thinking about this and it's not, we're, we're focused on the wrong problem. The problem isn't, why are people resigning? The problem underneath it is, we've come out of the pandemic where so many of our fundamental assumptions of how we want to show up at work as individuals has been questioned. You know, I, I work with very large companies at very senior executives and I say to them, how many of you have questioned 
how much time you want to put to work, how much balance you want in your life. How many of you have questioned how important work is to you, right? Where do you want to do it? How do you want to do it? Um, people always raise their hands. And I said, well, if you're feeling that, so is your entire company. And what, that, what's, what that's called is the great exploration. We have been given a pause during the pandemic to question. And, we, and some of our fundamentals were put on the table to be evaluated. Do I need to go into work every day? Right? What does that work model look like? Um, what's important to me? You know, we had, we had our loved ones in, in significant health jeopardy. What's really important to me? Um, and in that, in that shakeup of the great exploration, if a company doesn't meet their employees and allow them to explore while they're here, and we don't meet people with flexibility and models, then I'll tell you what's going to happen is they will go elsewhere to explore. They think their only option is to tap out. And that's right. what was happening at the peak of the great resignation. Now, just because your people aren't resigning today in droves doesn't mean that they're not still going through their great exploration, which means you may not be getting their whole self. You may not, you have people still questioning whether they should be here. If you want people all in, what we started doing is we started looking at what, how could leaders re-onboard their associates after the pandemic? We actually are just publishing an article um, if you just type Ferrazzi re-onboarding re the great exploration in, in Google, you'll find out. I'm not sure where we're publishing it. I think we might publish it in Forbes. Um, but we're publishing this article about how you can negotiate a conversation with your associates, with teams that you work with to re-onboard them and reconnect them to the purpose of the work, to each other, to the mission. Uh, very important as leaders today. Where does culture fit in all this? Because again, one of the other things when we talk about um, future of work and being, uh, you know, um, in a physical location, being virtual, hybrid, and so forth, is what happens to our culture? This set of norms and behaviors that companies are used to and employees kind of follow. I assume this influences culture in a positive way, almost becoming the culture in terms of this radical agility, for example, of following this, you know, collaboration stack and so forth. Is, is there a different perspective that you have on where this fits into an overall culture? So I like to shake people up a bit when I talk about culture, because I'm going to say a bombastic, silly thing, but culture is bull. <laughs> culture is bull. And what I mean by that is I'm so tired of executive teams and HR organizations doing their offsites and baking these broad-based mission, vision, value conversations and leaving it in this ether. The reality culture shows up every day in how we behave. Right. When we're sitting in a room together and on a scale of zero to five, now we do diagnostics of team behaviors. It's one of our, our primary businesses. We coach teams. So we believe in leadership, but we believe in teamship and we think teamship is under curated. So if you're in a room and I do a diagnostic of your team and what we find on a scale of zero to five, you answer two on the following question. Can we challenge each other in the room when it's risky to do so? The average team's a 2.4. So that's your culture. 
you are a, if that, if you have that, then I would say to you, you are a conflict avoidant culture. You may be passive aggressive. People may be, it may be political because chances are, if you don't speak up in the room, you're probably talking behind each other's backs. You're probably lobbying for what you want out in the corridors or in DMs, as opposed to transparently in the room where, where two people's difference of opinion could be argued transparently and sunlight is the greatest disinfectant. We could see the points of view and air it and discuss it as a, as a healthy team. Instead, people are lobbying for their way. That is, that's, that's, that 2.2 is a mediocre team, right? Right. That's your culture. So we, so we, we talk broadly about these concepts, but we, but then the question is, how do I get higher degrees of behavior of candor? Well, one thing you could do is when you are meeting remotely on Zoom or Teams or whatever, go to breakout rooms, have a powerful, important conversation, but go to breakout rooms for 10 minutes and have three people speak candidly about the topic and then come back into the room and have them report out. You increase candor by 85%. People are more likely to be candid in groups of three than they are in groups of 12. Right. Right. And the report backs lose very little of that candor or use asynchronous collaboration, as I was suggesting, meaning you, you use a document to air where people's strong opinions are prior to a group conversation so that everybody's point of view is clear and on the, and on a piece of paper where people can't hide their point of view. And you could argue it and see differences of opinion. I did this last week with, um, one of the teams I'm coaching, Bob Pittman's team is fantastic at iHeartMedia. And they had a really critical branding question that they were grappling with. And they were worried that there was a difference of, of a belief on this core branding question. And they put it into an asynchronous document and everybody hammered out what they thought. And then they saw where the dissent was clearly from every single person. And then they had the conversation to land the plane with, a, with an agreement on where we were going to go. So that's culture. Use your tools, use your practices, change your behaviors. That's culture. I'm tired of cultural conversations staying at the level of ether, you know, value statements and not getting down into the practices of work, not even down to the behaviors. People say, okay, we're going to translate our value statements into behaviors. We challenge each other. That's a word. Now, what's the practice? Breakout rooms, asynchronous conversation. That's the practice that I promise will increase the, the candor. So we've got to, no, my whole focus is high return practices. I focus on teaching teams, high return practices that ultimately, yes, will transform your culture. So I'm sorry, you got me off on a riff on that one because I'm so bummed out by conversations that stay swirling around in the ether and don't land with changes of practices. I, I just made a note. Don't ask Keith about culture anymore. Uh, no, I think, I think that's great. And, and I think, you know, it's, I, I share a lot of that, a lot of that with you because, you know, what I've said with culture is you can't just stick to the way it was. You, you at least need to evolve the culture to adapt to wherever we're going. Um, so that's, it's been a little bit of a pet peeve for me as well. Cause I hear it all the time. Um, in, in your research, have you seen any correlation with companies that have really embraced, whether it's unicorns or otherwise, sort of these practices and this, this, uh, going forward to work approach. Have you seen a correlation with customer success 
because that's another big thing that came out of um, you know organizations trying to maintain their brand, trying to keep their their customers happy, and so forth. And I'm wondering uh, if there is a direct correlation to happier employees, happier company, happier customers in terms of this approach. Have you seen any of that? You know, we're all victims of our histories. Um, I I cut my teeth on this topic of employee engagement and customer engagement back in 1990. I was at Harvard Business School. I had a great admiration for a gentleman named Len Schlesinger, who was a professor who had uh, really pioneered something called the service profit chain, where he was proving in retail, which he had come from Obon Pan and the limited, he had proven in retail that if an employee is more engaged and happier in a retail setting, customer satisfaction goes up. Big whoop, big surprise, right? But unfortunately, that was not really quantified in the past. People weren't quantifying employee engagement and measuring customer satisfaction. Spin ahead from 1990 to 2006, and there was a brilliant young man starting a company called Zappos. His name was Tony Shea. Sure. And he put that on steroids where he fundamentally decided to re-engineer the customer experience by by radically re-engineering the employee experience. And he wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. Tony's one of my best friends before he passed tragically during the pandemic. And, um, and we've now created the Tony Shea Award, capturing leaders, like perhaps some of you listening, maybe leaders who have practices. Remember, I'm the practice guy. What are the practices that you have which are proving that, you're, that as you lift employee engagement, you yield customer satisfaction improvements. And we're, we're documenting those in thetonysheaaward.com. Go to thetonysheaaward.com, apply if, you're, if you've got an innovative practice or learn from other innovators as well. But this value chain, this, this service profit chain, this invo- employee value chain, right? Into customer experience has now been statistically proven now, the question is, if you, if you have that as your North Star, you believe that that is gravity, that employee satisfaction yields customer satisfaction, then you work on an agile process to make sure that that is constantly pivoted. So what we learned in competing in the new world of work, the book that I wrote, was that the companies that, that used agile to run their business what are the six hills we have to take? And on, on, a, on a monthly basis, iterate how we're doing on those, um, pivot and, and adjust and re-engineer the next month of sprints toward that. If you take that and aim that at your customer experience, aim that at your employee experience, then you will be a radically adaptable company and you will gain the transformational outcomes that companies like Tony Shea and others uh, had, had at their advantage. Yeah, and I'm realizing now as as you're talking, the other area that would help in an organization, again, another term or terms that trend are, you know, this idea of the three P's, profit, people, planet, or ESG or sustainability. You know, when you talk about the people part of the three P's, um, I would think these types of practices are something that every organization can adapt to enforce that piece of that puzzle, this idea that uh, doing well doesn't mean you can't do good. And in this particular 
case from your employees. Um, so what does, is there an ideal version moving forward with this future of work? Is there an ideal version of what an employee, a team, a leader would look like in your mind? Yeah, we, we documented this in competing in the new world of work and there's four attributes of leadership that need to be dialed up in this radically volatile world to be radically adaptable. One of them is foresight that you will crowdsource from your team and your organization, the constant looking around corner for up growth opportunities and risks, that it's not just the curation of a risk department or a strategic growth department, that the organization will participate in constantly uh, looking around corners. And we learned that we did that during the pandemic. We had a lot of attendance up constantly and, and adjustments. Now those adjustments go to the second point, which is agile, foresight and agile. You're actually using the agile process of running your organization. We call that enterprise agile. The third is inclusion, which I alluded to a bit when I said crowdsourcing, but it's using these tools to be much more inclusive in our collaboration. It's what I was saying when I, early on when I was talking about shifting from synchronous meetings, which are not as inclusive, to asynchronous meetings, which can be boldly inclusive to move to a more using the hybrid tools, the work tools, become world-class hybrid and be much more inclusive in the way in which we collaborate, which means bolder and faster. Used to be that there was a myth, more people being involved in collaboration, the slower things were and the more milk toast consensus they were. Today with the right tools and the right process and the right mindset, you can have, you can have faster, bolder decisions that are more inclusive. And then finally, resilience, we, we awoke to the mental health of our teams. We awoke to the new social contract among a team of co-elevation where a team is lifting each other up, where the team adopts the responsibility of building its resilience and owning its resilience. Um, so foresight, agility, inclusion, and resilience become earmarks of a, a great leader of great teams. And I want to always make sure we're focusing more time on teams and teamship then we have traditionally only focused on leadership of, of a me to an individual. How do I create a co-elevating team? That's the earmark of a great leader. Yeah, fantastic insights, uh, Keith. I think to me, the, the culmination of basically uh, everything you've done in the, the current research and obviously in, in the past is uh, the statement that uh, you made that adaptability is a coping mechanism and radical adaptability is a transformation mechanism. Um, and I think, you know, I personally love that because, again, with all the conversations that I've had about this future of work and how we're going to get there, are we already there? I think sometimes we miss um, perhaps what matters. In this case, it's all tools and technology. And we don't go back and look at the individual um, and basically say, if if the individual feels like they belong, if the individual feels heard, then what tool you end up using kind of becomes superfluous to a certain end because you still have the, the, the guts, if you will, of, of what you need. Amen to that. Amen to that. I knew that today's conversation was going to be provocative and insightful because very few podcast leaders do the work that you do. I just want to make sure your listeners know and understand that you bust your butt to do the hard work that make these conversations powerful and insightful. And I just want to tip my hat to you. I do a lot of these 
And uh, I'm, I'm deeply impressed by how much you give to your audience in this way. Well, again, coming from you, very much appreciated. Um, looking forward to your next book, The Research. Uh, for those of you that are listening, if you haven't gotten a chance to read uh, Competing in the New World of Work, I highly suggest it. There's a lot more information than what we're able to cover in, uh, in this podcast. And uh, Keith, I certainly look forward to having you on a future episode to sort of geek out a little more on, on this topic a little further. So thank you again. Thanks for joining another episode of Light Data Action. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You can also follow us on Twitter at Light Data Action and for more Lumen news at Lumen Tech Co. As always, we'd love to get your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear on the show. And I hope you'll join us next time for another conversation.